All right. Time for another one. Yay! All right. I know it's fake, but that's okay. All right. We have a quiz coming up next time. So that's the in-class quiz. Sorry, it's just easier to do this one that way. So I know you got used to the other format. Now you got to get used to that. But it's only for the one, then we'll go back to the others coming up the following week. And we have a homework due this week, which should be on all the material I've already covered because it was on the, that last chapter we did, chapter 10, and then this last little unit that I'm just finishing up on going over the HR diagram. So all the homework, I hope, is only on that. That's what I intended it to be. I'm pretty sure it was only eight questions this time, right? So that should all be on that, and I think I've gone over all of it at this point, but I'll be finishing up anything else. So we do have those coming up for Friday, and the quiz is on the same material too. It's on those materials that we just did these last two weeks. iTunes U quiz number two is coming up. I've got it all ready. It'll be, I don't think I put it up on the site yet, but it'll be there available starting on next Monday and will be available for the week. The pictures go from 17th of October, September to 17th of October. So everything we've already, I quizzed you on before, I'm not asking you about again. So it'll only be that load of pictures through Monday, through Monday's picture. Homework five, that doesn't affect you. That quiz four doesn't affect you. And an article review coming up following week. You know, one or two of you have turned that in already. So questions on the assignments? No, no, okay. All right, our picture of the day for the day. Pretty scenery picture. Um, it's actually taken at night though. Of course, it was just a long exposure taken at night, so things actually lit up a little bit better than they normally would have. But what we're looking at is actually the meteors. Can you see all the little streaks here, here, here? You know, how many can you see coming around over this way, this way? All these meteors you're seeing from the meteor shower that we had about 10, 11 days ago, about two weeks ago. Unfortunately, it wasn't a really a great, it was, this is a nice picture of it, but it wasn't really a great one to go and look at because the moon was close to being full at the time. So the full moon, if you have a full moon near the meteor shower, it kind of blots out everything and makes it a lot harder to see. So it was supposed to be a very good shower in terms of the number of meteors, but not very good in terms of visibility. But there was a nice picture of here taken of it. I think this is from Spain. Where was it taken? Yeah, in Spain. So, but what you see, you see a few things. You sort of, you see the pattern of the, of the meteors. And there's a few that don't quite fit this. But if you notice, they all seem to be going back towards the same point here. So if you look at the ones here, if you trace the streaks backwards, they all seem to be coming from the same point, which is called the radiant point of a meteor shower. So all of the meteors will seem to be coming from that point. They're really not. It's an optical illusion. It's sort of like when you look, if you're traveling out someplace, not usually around here, you've got someplace you've got a nice long straight highway. What do the telephone poles do? They look like they're merging together in the distance. The road looks like it becomes narrower and narrower. Of course, it's not as you actually get there. Well, all the meteors are doing the same thing. They're all coming from the same point, from the same general area in space. So wherever they scatter across the sky, they look like they're pointing back to this radiant point. And if only you could do this on the sky, wouldn't that be nice? You can actually label things and actually point out where that radiant point is in the constellation of Draco, the dragon. So they actually seem to be coming from that area there. 
But yes, if you only point that out, it would be so much easier to point constellations out to people at the night sky. You could say, well, there's, you know, there's Orion, there's Ursa Major. You know, Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, there's the Little Dipper and the Big Dipper. Draco the Dragon, Hercules, Perseus, Cassiopeia, all those would be so nice. And that one that you noted there, if you noted the one that was sort of going a different direction, that's actually a galaxy. That's actually the Andromeda Galaxy. So you can get, there are meteors that aren't necessarily associated with the shower that could come from any random direction. And I wasn't sure about that one until I actually pulled up the overlay and said, oh, well, that's just the Andromeda Galaxy. That's right. So there you're actually seeing a whole galaxy of stars. So that would be the same regardless. Now the meteor showers are caused by the Earth going through a, the path of a comet. So as comets orbit around, comets orbit around the sun, you have the sun there and comets orbit in these really long elliptical paths. So we have some comet that's traveling along this path. It leaves little bits of debris behind it. And every time it comes through, some comets orbit once every 70 years, 100 years, 1,000 years. Some of them orbit every five or six years. When they come close to the sun and the sun heats them up, they lose little bits. So little bits of them get left behind. So they form, leave particles in this trail. They're all very small particles. We're talking the grain of, a grain of sand size, a pea, very tiny particles. And when the Earth, in its orbit, happens to pass through that comet's orbit, that's when we get a meteor shower. So the Earth is passing through that, the orbit of that comet, getting all those, collecting all those particles. They stream into the atmosphere. They burn up. They never make it to the surface. They're just little pieces of dust and dust and ice that were left over by the comet. So they never make it down to the Earth. They're not the big rocks that make it actually make it down. But as the Earth passes through, then we see a meteor shower. So we can predict a meteor shower pretty well. We know when it's going to occur. What we often can't tell, because I can't tell you how many particles are there. These are all little teeny tiny things. We don't see them until they strike the Earth's atmosphere and burn up. So I can't really tell you exactly how big it's going to be until afterwards. They make predictions sometimes based on previous ones. But sometimes it's hard to tell until you actually get to the meteor shower. A real good one, real nice one is in August, is the Perseids. So if you've ever seen that, usually the second week in August, as long as you don't get a full moon that week, it's usually the bad thing. But you can actually see one a minute every other minute. You can see one every couple of minutes. That's pretty fast. The meteor shower is not like the storm of shower, storm of meteors coming on where you're going to see. You're going to look up in there and see them just flashing by. You'll watch and you'll see one, and then you know a minute later or 30 seconds later, you'll see another one streak through the sky. And that would be a meteor sh meteor shower that you'd get. There's a couple others that are coming up here. This one was this was taken in on October the 8th, so that was just a couple weeks ago. And it was actually a relatively nice one. It actually had a good number of meteors, but as I said, the moon was out. So when you have a nice, big, bright, close to full moon, it kind of blots out everything. And the moon was going to be out towards the time of the peak as well when we were actually going through this, this area. So pretty little picture. I, say, I wish you could just overlay things on the sky like that when you wanted to be able to point things out here. Although you can actually now. If you've ever used, I think I know iPhone has them and the Android have different apps that you can do. You can download free apps that you can download and hold them up to the sky and it'll show you what's, what's that bright thing. Oh, it's Jupiter. There actually are apps that you can download from a lot of the things to do that. So in a way you can right now. 
you can do that. Okay, questions, questions? All right, back to our HR diagram. Whoops, before we do HR diagram, I was going to go and do the other part first. HR diagram we were looking at. So I'm going to put this on and just do a couple examples of showing you a couple of the stars. We'll come back to this a little bit later, but just to show you, you know, I've talked a little bit about how boring the life of the sun is, right? So if we get something that's roughly the mass of the sun, and we create a star and we watch what happens to it, pretty boring, right? 25,000 years already have passed. Not doing much, is it? 40,000 years. That's good though. We want the sun to be nice. If the sun hadn't been nice and stable over the last millions of years, would we be here? You know, if the sun got twice as hot and twice as cold, that wouldn't be very good for things here. Okay, there's 100,000 years. Still not much, right? We increase the speed at which it's going. So we can go a little bit faster. 200,000, 300,000, 400,000. Has it budged yet? Million years. Five million. Ten million. Twenty million. We're going almost millions of years at a time right now. Still not budging. Again, that's still good. That means that the sun has been stable and will can. Oh, there I saw a change. Temperature changed slightly. After a billion years, we're starting to see some changes. It's starting to move a little bit. You can see a little trail there. Now that we're going so fast, we're going 9 million years per sec for each second. We actually see it start to change. Temperature is changing. Oh, there it goes. Boom. Then all of a sudden it goes real quick as we move faster. But look at the time frame was 6 billion years. So it took it a long time to actually go do that. Other stars can take more or less time depending on how big they are. If we look at a really low mass star, I'm not going to I'm going to run this one in their auto mode, which just means it does the speed so you don't sit there and wait for a year for it to change. So it's going to go very very quickly but then it will slow down so you can actually see that those other stages a little bit better. So now we're doing a less massive star. So now it looks like it's moving, but look at the time. We're at 20 billion years. 22 billion years. So you see how the time is actually slow. It was changed. It went very quickly here. It went zipped through the time here when you didn't do much and then it... Interesting thing. Look where they ended up. They end up in the same spot. They both end up in the red giant range about 20 times the size of the sun. A little cooler than the sun, so in towards the redder part. And much, much more luminous than the sun. But the time was different. This one took 6 billion years to get there. This one took 23. So that means any star that size that has formed, ever has formed, is still sitting on the main sequence. Because the universe is estimated to be about 13, 14 billion years old. If this is going to take 22 billion years, we haven't gotten there yet. So none of these stars have ever, have ever started to do this yet. So this is all just done by calculations. And we can't observe these changes. Now what if we looked at a more massive star? I'm going to do a couple here for you before I go back to that. Let's do twice the size of the sun. What happens? Again, I'm leaving out an auto for you. But again, watch the time. We haven't hit a billion years yet. It's moving well off. It's a lot bluer to start off. Kind of wanders around a little bit. Now it's getting red, 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 red. 
still ends up in about the same spot. It, not, not all the stars are going to do this, but these first couple, you know, so a star half the mass of the sun to a star twice the mass of the sun, they end up in the same spot in the HR diagram. They'll all end up in this red giant range. Now some of the bigger stars will do things a little bit differently. Again, size is quite similar, right? What was the other one, like 19 or 20, I think, the last one we looked at? Temperatures, similar. Luminosity, a little bit more luminous. It is higher up the HR diagram, but not, not as much as it was when they were on the main sequence. When they were here versus when they ended up here, they're much closer in the end. Now let's do one more big star. What do they do? 100 times, well, let me do two more. Let's do something in between. Let's do 20 times the mass of the sun. So a real big star here. Way up, starts way up the main sequence. Again, look at the times. We ran that for 8 million years. The sun didn't budge. This star is changing drastically. So you wouldn't want to live around that star. It's cooling off. So it goes through its life a lot quicker. Doesn't get quite as far down. Maybe I should do one further down that gets a little bit further out there. But it's time. 8 million years. Those stars don't live very long. 8 million years to go from main sequence to their case, red, their red giant isn't quite as red. Let me do, what did I do earlier that worked better? Five, maybe. I think five actually got over there, did a little bit more, was a little more interesting. Again, a little longer time, but you see how the times change. Now we're going to go through this in more detail in chapter 12. We'll come back and look at the, how the stars change, but this is what I mean when you say you can follow them on the HR diagram. You can see how they would move over time. And again, we're talking only 70 million years here. Look at it going up there. That one actually zooms right up into the red. 8,000 times the luminosity of the sun, 100 times the size and much cooler. But they all do tend to end up over in this red giant range. There's a little bit of a range depending on the exact stars. And then I may as well do the biggest one and see what that does. Won't take very long to do a 100 solar mass star. Two million years. Gonna hit three million. Three million. Trying to get to three million. Three million years. Interesting how they change different. Look how big that one gets. So a little over three million years. That star almost just goes straight across the HR diagram. It stays almost the same brightness that it was which was two million times brighter than the sun. So it didn't get a lot brighter, really. It stayed at the same place. All it did was cool off. It went from being a very, very hot star, 30, 40,000 degrees, to being about 5,000 degrees, a little less than the sun. And in that time, it had to go from being a little bit bigger than the sun, 10, 20 times bigger than the sun, probably. I didn't see when it started to going to being six, over a thousand times the size of the sun. So those big stars in that, upper, in that upper corner. So again, we'll come back and we'll look at this a little bit more just because I had it on there. I wanted to talk about it a little bit while we were looking at the HR diagram. It sort of shows you how, what I mean when I say we can study how stars evolve. We can do calculations to figure out the exact structure of a star. And I can tell you that as it ages, how its temperature and its brightness are going to change. And as those temperatures and brightnesses change, it will move along the HR diagram. They all start on the main sequence, and they all end up at some point towards the red giant range. 
and then finally white dwarfs depending on the exact star. So questions on that? So we'll come back and look at that in a little bit more detail again. I'll go over the details of it a little more. But I wanted to show you that here. As I was mentioning exactly, you know, as I said, the massive stars evolve faster. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So massive stars evolve faster. We looked at that star that was a hundred times the mass of the sun, and it only took three million years to go from main sequence to gone. Big red giant and about gone. The low mass star took twenty billion years. So longer than the age of the universe. And that wasn't even the smallest mass. That was about seven-tenths the mass of the sun. So a little less massive than the sun. You can go down, you can have stars that are, you know, a quarter the mass of the sun. You'd be talking hundreds of billions, trillion years that they'd last. So if you want to live around a star that's going to last a long, long time, you want one nice little star. But you want to live nice and close to it because, you know, if you put one of those little tiny stars at the center of our solar system, we'd be frozen out here. You'd have to be orbiting really, really close to it. But you wouldn't have to worry about, you know, your sun disappearing. Whereas if you wanted to live around a very massive star, you don't have very long. Three million years, it's gone. And it's already, you know, gotten so much bigger, it swallowed up any planets that were close to it. Now that one didn't go through the white dwarf phase, which is the ending phase, which is where the sun will end up. Okay. But show you that on here. This is sort of what we were looking at, and you saw some of this depending on the exact star. But they go up towards the red giant phase. They kind of jump back down to what we call horizontal branch. They'll sit there for a little while. A little while is in a much, much shorter time than they spend on the main sequence. So the sun might spend 10 billion years here and might spend millions of years on the horizontal branch. So it won't stay there very long. So you only happen to happen to catch them. That's where it's doing, remember this is hydrogen, this is burning hydrogen to helium. Then up here, it's lost, it's, it's finishing up its hydrogen and losing its energy. At stage nine, again, we'll go through these in more detail, but at stage nine is where it actually ignites helium. It gets hot enough in the core to smash helium nuclei together. So the heat, now we had the hydrogen smashing together to make helium. Now we can smash helium nuclei together to make carbon. So it actually has a new energy source in here where it settles down, and that's where it's nice and happy for a few million years because it's got an energy source to keep it going. But helium doesn't last near as long as hydrogen. It burns a lot quicker. It doesn't give you as much energy. So it quickly then starts to expand again. Eventually those outer layers get thrown off into space. That's the planetary nebula phase. So it has a real dense core, a real hot core of the star, and the real big outer layer. So it's kind of in a very diffuse area. It really doesn't define on the HR diagram. It's kind of separating itself. And then eventually it reappears down here in the white dwarf region. So you'll see just the core, and then slowly cools off. So as it cools off over time, it'll become a white dwarf to a black dwarf as it cools off. That cooling takes as long as these stars do to go through their lives. So there are no black dwarfs yet left in the, yet in the universe. They have, the universe has not had time for any white dwarf to cool off that amount. But what is a white dwarf? They're in that lower left part of the HR diagram. So they're in that lower left corner. They're very hot, 100,000 degrees, 50,000 degrees, extremely hot, as hot as the hottest stars on the main sequence, but the size of the Earth. So even though they're so hot, they're incredibly tiny, only the size of the Earth, so they're very small, very faint. We don't see them very easily. 
they slowly move down. So slowly, as we looked at in the last picture, they'll move down a little bit. As they cool, now a white dwarf doesn't have an energy source. It's done. It's a dead core of a star. So it's just all collapsed down. It's become solid. And it doesn't have any, there's no energy being produced in the center. So all it can do now is radiate the last of its energy away. But because it's so small, that just takes a long, long time. So it slowly cools off over many billions of years and just slowly gets fainter and cooler and fainter and cooler until it's gone. Still there, but it's not, no longer visible. And it is, again, as I said, it's just the dead core of a star. There's no energy being produced. It could be made completely of, for a star like the sun, it would end up being made from pretty much of carbon and oxygen. So it would be a whole big ball of carbon and oxygen, pretty much. Yes, there'd be scattered little things scattered in it as well, but mostly it's just that core. It's what was the core of the sun when all the outer layers have been pushed out into space. So all the hydrogen that was left in the outer layers is pushed out into space. All that's left is that dead core. And what's left over? Well, on the left you have what you'll get for the sun. So the sun should look something like that in five, six billion years. So once it's gone through its life, there's the white dwarf with the arrow pointing to it. And then these would be the outer layers of the star that have been pushed off into space. So now it becomes the size of the solar system. You know, you've pushed that off to beyond the size of the solar system. And you can actually see a nebula. So the outer layers just get very, very diffuse and pushed out into space. But they're still heated up by this incredibly hot star at the center. So that's 100,000 degrees. It's putting out a lot of radiation to excite these excite the atoms in this outer, what was its outer atmosphere that is now lost. It got too far away and it could no longer hold on to it. So it escaped. So that's a gentle death. That's for something like the sun. If you have a much more massive star, it does things a little bit differently. You get something more like this. Doesn't look as nice and calm as the other one. The other one looks like the outer layers just sort of scooted off into space and it just looks like that star got bigger and bigger and bigger and those outer layers just kind of got let go. That's the other one's much more violent. This is actually the remnant of a supernova explosion. So that 100 solar mass star we were looking at, well, little beyond what we did on that little simulation, that little computer simulation there, it would actually tear itself apart. So it would pr be producing energy, it would run up to its maximum, and eventually the core becomes unstable and tears itself apart. And as you can see, just looking at this as compared, you can see it looks like something a lot more violent happened there. That star actually tore itself apart. There is a core left at the center. Actually, I'd call it a neutron star in this case, but we'll come back to those in a few chapters. So there is actually a core left there, a little bit left. But most of the material has been scattered out into space in this explosion. And this has been going, this one occurred not quite a thousand years ago now, 1054. This is the supernova of 1054. It's the Crab Nebula in the constellation of Taurus. So that explosion actually occurred visibly and in a thousand years, it took a thousand years only for it to expand out this way. And that'll keep doing the same thing again until either one of these will continue to expand until they get, stop getting enough energy from their cores to excite them. Once there's not enough energy there, that core cools off enough, then you'll never know, be able to see that nebula there. The gas will still be there, slowly expanding out into space, but it just won't be visible anymore. So, again, just finishing up our review of the HR diagram here. 
We get a lot of information from it. We can learn the temperature, the brightness, the mass, the radius of a star. So we plot the temperature and brightness, but if I look at where stars are on the HR diagram that was here last time, then you can, then you can actually determine things. You know, I can ask you, if I ask you where a more massive star is or where a bigger star is, you know, we know the small stars are in the lower left, the biggest stars are in the upper right. The more massive stars are towards the left-hand side, the less massive stars are towards the right-hand head side. We can use it to see how a star changes over time. So how does that star change? That's what we just looked at, that little simulation I showed you at the beginning of class. It actually shows you how the star can change. And we can see, we can do calculations to see what the brightness and the temperature of the star will be and see where it's going to end up. Most of the life is spent on the main sequence. So that's why I said, that's why I ran that first one at you know normal time. Well, normal time is in a thousand years per second. And it didn't do much. You know, we could we could have sat there and let it run all class and come back to it at the end of 50 minutes and see if it had even changed much yet. And it probably would not have. So most of a star's life is spent in that boring main sequence phase. That's why when you look at what our next two chapters are, that we're going to start our chapter on the interstellar medium here in a few minutes, which talks about we talk about how stars form. That's an interesting part. Lots of things are going on there. We skip the main sequence phase. You know, I can do that in a couple sentences. Then we go on to the end of the star's life because nothing really happens there. Which again, in many ways, it's nice for us because it's nice and calm and the sun is this giving us the same amount of energy now as it was billions of years ago. And if it were, you know, this hot today and it were going to be 10,000, the sun were going to go to 10,000 degrees tomorrow, then well, that would not be a very, you know, pleasant thing for us here on Earth. Or if it were to go down to 3,000 degrees. Still hot, right? But it's still going to be a lot cooler than the energy we're used to getting. So, you know, the Ice Age comes real quick that way. So. And then it'll go through afterwards, a star like the Sun will go through a red giant phase. We looked at that there. And will end up as a white dwarf. Now again, I've just given you a basic overview of that. This time I'm going to come through after, as we're going to go with the next three, next three chapters are going to go through all of this in detail. We'll talk about formation of stars. There are deaths of stars and the remnants is what's left over afterwards. But that I wanted to finish so you're ready for your quiz. Know your HR diagram. The quiz is specifically on the HR diagram. So the HR diagram we made this time, if you know that, you'll do just fine. So questions? No? Okay. Then we shall go on and start chapter 11. And chapter 11 is, if I recall, the chapter we're supposed to be covering this week. So we're actually almost back on schedule, which is good. But we're going to be looking in this chapter, we're going to talk about the interstellar medium, which is just all the material in between the stars. So there's a lot of gas and dust there. As we see in this image, there's lots of gas and dust, different material there. That's what we're going to be talking about. We're talking about the material in between the stars. And actually, it's the stuff from which the stars form. So it'll actually form stars as well. So first of all, I'll tell you about interstellar matter and what there is. So what kind of materials are there? We'll talk about star-forming regions and those dark dust clouds. So dark, dusty areas where stars are forming. And then I'll go through and tell you, talk about in more detail, probably won't get to this part until Friday, but tell you about how stars actually have formed stars like the Sun and stars of other masses. 
It's the same general process, but things change a little bit depending on the exactly the mass of the star. As you saw when we did our simulations of the end life of a star, you know, a star like the Sun or a little less massive went to one spot, but a star much more massive did things a little bit differently. So we'll look and you'll see that there are some changes between them, but the general process is the same. And then finally we'll talk a little bit about star clusters and how groups of stars have formed. Okay, so interstellar matter has two components. It's got gas and it's got dust. Gas is, like everything else in the universe, hydrogen and helium. So, you know, not the gas you put in your car, but hydrogen, hydrogen gas, helium gas, primarily. Dust is bigger clumps of things. So gas, we know, we know what the gas does. Gas is just diffuse hydrogen and helium and that produces those absorption lines, right? It absorbs that hydrogen, red hydrogen line and those blue hydrogen lines. Helium would absorb its set of lines. Any other gases that are in there would absorb the appropriate lines. Dust does a lot more. When you get to dust, you get you actually can absorb whole regions of the electromagnetic spectrum. You can absorb all the visible light. And that's what you're seeing here. You can see a cloud of dust, not directly, but you can see it by the absence of stars behind it. Where did the stars go? Is there just no stars in that area? Or is there something in front of them that's blocking the light coming from them? So the dust does two things. It absorbs the light, but it also, if you look at the edges of these, edge of this gas dust cloud, all the stars look very red. So the dust not only absorbs the light and makes the star look fainter than it should be, it also makes it look redder than it should be. So it can be a confusing thing if you don't know about the dust, which we didn't, you know, 100, 150 years ago, we didn't know about dust in space. So it was very easy to get incorrect measurements of the distance. Because if these stars are fainter, they look fainter than we think they should be, then we're going to think they're further away. That's why they're fainter, not that there's dust there. So a star could look fainter because there's dust, or it could look fainter because it's further away. And there are ways to calculate it now that we understand. We can determine how much it's been what we call reddened. So how much redder the star is than it should be. Because if I were to take this, and last time I told you about the color index, right? We did the color index and looked at the star in two filters. Well, this star has been reddened. It's going to look redder than it should be, so it's going to have a bigger color index than it would have otherwise. But if we actually look in detail, at the, that's going to tell us the temperature and it's going to tell us it should be cooler. But if we actually look at the spectral lines, we might find out that it's a relatively hot star that's just going through a lot of gas and dust. So you can use all this information together to tell you a lot more about, not only about the dust cloud, but about the stars themselves. But as you see here, along the edge, you get a lot of very red stars. And they're not just, some of them are red stars. No, there's some red stars and some blue stars in here. There's a nice blue one, there's a nice red one. But when everything here is red, and the fact that it's so much darker and there's, you know, there's a region of the universe that has no stars, shouldn't be. Shouldn't be anything that big that has no, star, no stars in it at all. Okay. So what hap what's happening in the dust cloud? If we look at it, 
Here's that same image from the first slide, right? Big dust cloud. Here's the image again. If you notice the thing underneath, this was taken in visible light. So in visible light you see nothing. This was taken in infrared light. So if you took an infrared image of the star, of the sky, then you see, wait, all of a sudden that big empty spot is now filled with stars. They're there, we just couldn't see them. They're being blocked out in the visible portion of the spectrum because that dust is very, very good at absorbing shorter wavelengths. So the shorter wavelengths get absorbed the most. So the blue light gets absorbed the most and then the red as you work your way down the spectrum. So when you get down here to the infrared, it's barely affected. So infrared comes right through. So that's why we like those infrared telescopes because we can see right through this dust cloud and see that, yep, there's stars there. We just can't see them in the visible portion of the spectrum. What doesn't change, as I mentioned before, was the spectral lines. So you can actually determine the temperatures and things from the spectral lines, as we talked about, determine the spectral class from the lines, and tell exactly what type of star it really is, even though its overall spectrum has been changed from up here, a lot of that light has been absorbed, making it much fainter in the blue. You're getting almost no blue light coming through, and almost none of anything. If you have enough dust there, it can actually absorb out all the visible light of the stars and you won't see anything behind it. But if you can look in the infrared, you can see right through that dust cloud. So that's what you're going to see. So it's going to do two things. Again, the dust cloud is going to do two things. It's going to absorb light, make everything look fainter, and it's going to, make, it's going to absorb the blue light even better than it absorbs the red light and make it look redder. So the objects through the dust cloud are going to look redder than they should be and fainter than they should be. When we look at the Milky Way, this is part of the Milky Way, you get the same kind of thing. Right? Milky Way is not just a smooth thing of stars. There's lots of darker areas. There's brighter areas where we're seeing lots of stars. And there's darker areas where we're seeing fewer stars. If you're looking at the Milky Way itself, it really is not the presence or absence of stars, but the presence or absence of dust. If there's dust between us and that part of the, that part of the Milky Way, we're not going to see very many stars there. So we don't see many stars, don't see too many stars. You may see a few in front. Here, there's less dust and you're seeing deeper. But we still cannot see to the center of our Milky Way invisible light. We cannot, get, there's too much dust there that even that portion of it is blocked out completely. Now what we're see the other thing you're seeing here are a couple of these Messier objects, which are where fuzzy objects is looked at through the telescope, not to be confused with comets. But many of them are actually nebulae or regions where stars are currently forming. So there's actually a lot of areas in our Milky Way galaxy where stars are currently forming right now. Now our sun formed five billion years ago, but there's stars that are still forming, and we know they have to be, right? Remember we looked at those big hot stars, those hundred times the mass of the sun stars, they only lived three million years. But we still see them today. We see some today. So they had to have formed within the last three million years. If they'd formed five million years ago, they'd be gone and dead. They formed a hundred million years ago, they'd be gone and dead. They formed five billion years ago, like our sun did, they'd be gone. But we know there's currently areas where they're still forming and that they, some of them have formed because we do see some of those very, very massive stars in our galaxy. 
there are galaxies we'll come to where we don't see any massive stars at all. So when we look at some of these nebulae, these are some examples just to give you an idea of how far away, how big they are. Those are in parsecs, so you multiply them by about 3, you're getting 20, 30, about 20 to 40 light years diameter, so they're big. They have a lot of material in them, 2,600 solar masses. So if you took all this material and converted it into stars exactly like the sun in this one nebula, you could make 2,600 stars. Now you're never going to do that many, obviously. It's not going to be that efficient of a process that you're going to be able to form. Each particle is going to be part of one of those stars. And you might form some more massive stars or some less massive ones. But there'll be a lot of material left over as well. But how much material is in those little clusters that are forming? And then their temperatures. They're starting to warm up. We'll look at some of them. These are actually ones where stars are forming, so you're actually starting to see them as star, temp- star type temperatures. So the amount of material there, this is all, these are all regions where stars are currently forming. So not a lot of, they're not very concentrated overall. You have some concentrations in the stars. This number just means they're very, 80 million particles in one cubic meter is essentially a vacuum on the Earth. You know, that's much better than a vacuum. That's better than a vacuum you normally get here on the Earth. That's not, the density of our atmosphere is significantly higher than that. That's only one million particles in a cubic meter. So a big cube, you know, like that, only a million particles, that's nothing here on Earth. That's nothing for the Earth. That's a vacuum. But because they're so big, they actually contain a lot of material on there, and that's what is slowly being condensed into stars and will eventually form stars. Okay. There we go. Nebula. We've talked about these a couple times, but there's two different, couple different type of nebula. There's a dark nebula. That's what we were just looking at. I only saw two of them here. I should have added the third one in. We have the darker nebula, which are these darker areas, which are the dusty areas. So not just empty portions of the sky, but actually areas where there's dust that is blocking out the light of the stars. We have emission nebula, which is the red one. And remember, red is hydrogen. So we have dark nebula, which is essentially a dust cloud. So materials that's being blocked out. We have an emission nebula. which shines because of emission from hydrogen. So hydrogen, again, that bright red. So these look red. So that looks red because you're seeing that emission from hydrogen. So when you look at that red nebula there, that's telling you there's hydrogen gas there that's being excited. The third type of nebula is called a reflection nebula. And that reflects blue light 
off of dust. So that blue nebula, so you got all three of them here at once. You've got the dark, dark nebulae in the dust lanes, the emission nebula in this section, that's, hydro, that's hydrogen gas being emitted, but you also have a reflection nebula where you have a bright hot star that is reflecting its light off the dust. So there's dust there, not a high enough concentration perhaps of dust to completely blot things out, but enough that it still is reflecting the blue light. Now remember that dust likes to absorb dust. When we looked at it the other way, we kept, I told you before that the dust absorbed the blue light, right? Well, it can't just keep it. So it actually is what it's doing is scattering all that blue light out into space. So depending on how you're looking at it, if you're looking from outside and around and not directly through the cloud, you see the blue glow coming. Like the way the sky is. Not blue today, right? Is it rainy? Not blue today, but you know, the way the sky is off, often blue. That's just the light from the sun being scattered through the molecules of the atmosphere. It looks, the sun looks red at sunset because all the blue light has been scattered around the rest of the sky. Well, the same thing happens here. The blue light gets scattered by these dust particles. So if you're looking through a lot of dust, you've removed it because it's getting scattered out to the whole rest of space instead of coming straight through as the red and the infrared did. Now, when you look at the two pictures here, same nebula again. Okay? Can you see the patterns are the same? See those little dust lanes coming through here that are nice and that pattern there, there, there's a dust lane coming through and over here. The difference again, this is visibly, this is what you'd see through a telescope, visible light telescope, and this is what you'd see through an infrared telescope. So again, what are you looking at with the infrared telescope? You're seeing the darker, dustier areas. You can actually see into those that are not visible in typical visible light, but are visible in the infrared light. And some other things are interesting. You actually have material up here that you can't see at all. There's some stuff up here that's not even seen in the visible that is in the infrared. So, again, why we like to study stars, galaxies, the universe in different wavelengths is because we learn more about those portions. We get to see things that you wouldn't, you know, we find out things are there that we didn't even know were there. Okay, so that's the three types and again, to review this again, the emission nebulae are red. So that looks red and I should have said the other one looks blue. So these ones will actually look blue. So the emission nebula will look red. It's fun, try to write, write blue and say red at the same time, that's fun. So a reflection nebula reflects reflecting the blue light. The emission nebula is the emission from hydrogen. So that's going to look very red. That's that H alpha line, that bright 656 nanometer line of hydrogen. The dust lanes are actually part of the nebula. So you could have dust in between us and the nebula or you could have dust within the nebula itself. In this case, you can actually find out that they're actually part of the nebula. It's not like there's a cloud in between us that is blocking that light. It's actually part of the nebula itself. And the, the reflection nebula Reflecting blue light will look blue. So you'll have one nebula looks red, one looks blue, and one looks dark. So here's an example visually as to how they work. So what do we have? You have, you have your hot, real hot stars that have just formed. So you have some 
stars that have formed, they excite the gases around them, heat it up, they give off a lot of ultraviolet radiation, and they excite this hydrogen that's surrounding them, and then give off that red light. So we actually see those that this nebula around it glowing in the red because these stars are heating up that red, that, that hydrogen and causing it to give off that red light. There's part of that dust cloud that we were seeing and then some of that light that goes through, some of that light might go through another cloud. So this was our emission nebula. The dark nebulae would be darker areas within this. The reflection nebula is light that is being scattered. So you have light coming away from this, this, this nebula, reaching another dusty cloud, maybe a little bit closer to us, but not that, not to scale here. You know, we're way off over in the next town over there to scale. But the visible light comes through this dusty cloud. The red light mostly goes through. So if light is coming from this cloud and going straight through, we're not going to see that red light very well because it's all heading off into space someplace else. Some other astronomer would see that light from this star being reddened by this dust cloud. But all the blue light gets scattered around and comes goes off in all directions. So we see the blue light. So that would give us our reflection nebula. So that's sort of just like a one diagram showing you how each of the nebulae are formed. It all depends on these hot stars. If these hot stars go away, all of it turns off. So they don't, these nebulae don't last very long. If those hot stars only last a few million years, once they're gone, then there's nothing to excite this hydrogen gas. You don't see an emission nebula. Well, the dust lanes aren't going to go any place, but if there's nothing bright to see them against, they're going to be invisible, so you're not going to be able to see them. And all this visible starlight coming from these stars that's causing the reflection nebula is going to be gone. So these nebulae don't last very long on an astronomical time scale. They only last as long as the bright stars that are forming them do. Of course, as you note here, there's a big cloud back here. So as these stars form and die, it, just, it can work its way through the cloud and more stars would be forming behind it. So it can be a perpetuating process that as those stars are dying, new stars are forming to take their place behind them deeper into this cloud. Okay, so that's the three types of nebulae. And you get some more examples here where you get some areas where the stars are actually dissolving the material. You actually these pillars that, uh, that form and the stars that are forming are sort of evaporating and you're seeing evaporating the material, getting rid of the dust, they're clearing it out and you have the denser areas left. So you have, it clears off those nice easy areas that don't have as much dust in them, you know, it breezes through those, but those dustier areas kind of stick out. So those are areas probably where stars are going to be, where the next generation of stars is forming. Because this means it's a denser area, so you have star formation towards the tip of that pillar, and then as that slowly as these other stars have pushed the other material away, there was a lot less material here, it got cleared out, less material here, it got cleared out, and there will be stars forming in that, which will eventually get rid of that, get this portion over time. And that's what we call photoevaporation, is just the evaporation by light. So light is taking care of wiping out, of wiping out everything and clearing the space. Sort of the way the sun sort of cleared the space around the solar system. It, pushed away a lot of particles with its solar wind. 
And what's the, there we go. And we'll finish up with this one, the emission nebula. Because we've seen all this before, right? And if you look at an emission nebula and you take a spectrum of it, you get something like this. And from your experience, you can tell me exactly which elements are in there, right? No, I don't expect you to. But I want you to know that you could figure, that's, you know, with the proper tools, you could figure it out. But you can actually see when you look at these emission nebula, you don't get just hydrogen. But there's also hydrogen, there can be helium, neon, oxygen, so you can get all of those put together. So you have to work through and decipher exactly what is part of that nebula. But you can actually determine exactly what that thin gas is, the hot thin gas. And based on our laws of spectroscopy, that's going to give us an emission spectrum, which is what we see. But again, much more complicated than the simpler ones that we gave you to look at in class here. So I am going to finish up there, because I think that was the end of, yes, because the next is dark dust clouds, which we'll come back to next time. So I'm going to finish up there, and then we'll start on section 11.3 on Friday. So quiz, quiz Friday on the HR diagram. We'll start this section in lecture, and then we have a lab, an HR diagram lab. Question, I'm sorry, yes. Go back to the previous one. I can do that. That one there? All right. Have a good afternoon.